So this morning we're going to um, engage our message series, The Story of God. And we're picking up with the life of Moses. Last week we looked at um, the Passover and God setting his people free from slavery in Egypt and moving them through the Red Sea into freedom as a people in the desert. And we're going to pick up there really with um, what God is doing with his people in the desert and in many ways through um, his leader, Moses. Now, here's the thing. I can't tell the entire narrative of 40 years in the desert um, during this time. Some of you are really thankful about that. We've got plans this afternoon, right? But I can say what God is doing. God is um, shaping a people for himself. That's the reason for the pillar of fire by night and the cloud of smoke by day. The water from the rock, the quail and the manna, and all the victories over the foreign armies. That's what God is doing. Shaping a people for himself. It's also why God gives the law. And so of all the narratives in this part of the story of God, this morning we're going to focus, we're going to hone in on the law. The law. Because it's through the law that God reveals who he is and shows his people how to live in a right relationship with him and with one another. And it's through the law that God continually points out how desperately we need him in our daily lives. Now, the law is tough. I fought the law, and the law won. It is the clash. And so this isn't a feel-good message this morning. But the reason God gives the law is it's because he loves his people. And the reason why I'm going to hone in on the law today is because I love you. God loves us. And listen, unless we have a clear understanding of the meaning and the purpose of the law, we can never fully appreciate the grace of the gospel. See, the law is a diagnostic. It's not a cure. Have you ever had a fever? Right? Do you have a thermometer at home? Yeah, in our house, like, it's the thing we're looking for all the time, right? Where'd the thermometer go? Have you seen the thermometer? You know you have a fever by using a thermometer. But does the thermometer cure your fever? No. The thermometer is a diagnostic tool that lets you know you have a fever and how high it is. The law is like a thermometer. It lets you know that you're spiritually sick, but it doesn't cure your spiritual sickness. Let me ask you this question. Deep down, are you basically a good person? Yes or no? Just think about your answer to that question. Deep down, are you basically a good person? Well, think about what's the basis for your response to that question? What's the basis for your answer? Because most of us answer that question by comparing ourselves to someone else or to the way things used to be. Like, 
back then in college, in the frat house, right? We consider ourselves to be basically good because we test and judge ourselves against our own set of standards. And most of us deem ourselves to be basically good because we live up to our own standard of what basically good is. But what if we were to measure our goodness against what God defines as good? Now, pick your answer to this question, yes or no. Deep down, does God think you're basically a good person? If you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. God's people have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and all they've seen is idolatry and murder and covetousness. And so with the law, the Father is lovingly saying, here's how to live in a right relationship with me and with one another. The Ten Commandments are the basic outline of God's standard of goodness. They're a gift that God gives us to clarify exactly what he requires of us. That's a loving thing to do. If you want to shape a people and you want them to understand your expectations of them, you make it clear to them. That's what God's doing. He's a loving father. And so the law, the Ten Commandments are a gift. And they're God's definition, God's standard of what it means to be a good person in his eyes. It's how God judges our heart. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. When's the last time you were in the assembly of God's people and looked at the Ten Commandments? This is going to be tough, but it's going to be good. The Father loves us, and he wants to shape us in his image and likeness and restore us to the glory for which he designed us to experience for him. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. God says for us to be good in his eyes, we must make him our top priority. And so to keep this commandment means to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind. To see everything from God's point of view. To do everything in reference to him. To make God's will our guide and his glory our goal. In thought, in word, in deed, wherever we are, whomever we're with, using whatever money, possessions, time, and talents that we have. Are we good in God's eyes? No. The first commandment virtually shouts how ungrateful and self-centered and rebellious we are. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who can save us from ourselves? Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. God says that for us to be good in his eyes, we must seek and serve him alone. 
not fixate our eyes or our hearts on anything or anyone else. To keep this commandment is to worship God, to ascribe worth to him. Not our grades or our diploma or our position. Not our house with more rooms, a bigger yard, and in a better place. Not the next title or a greater paycheck or any substance or any person. Are we good in God's eyes? No. The second commandment reveals the reality that we regularly turn away from God and bow down to idols. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who can save us from ourselves? Commandment three. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. God says for us to be good in his eyes, we must speak his name only in a manner that reflects his nature and character. And and that means more than removing GD from our vocabulary. To keep this commandment means honoring and respecting what God's name tells us about who he is and who he created us to be at his image and likeness. It means believing God is Elohim, praising him as creator and the maker of all things. It means believing that God is Jehovah Jireh and seeking his provision and trusting he will provide what and when he knows is best for us, for his glory and for our growth and relationship with him. It means to believe that God is wonderful counselor. And so to consistently open his word and eagerly listen for his voice and faithfully obey his instructions, put his teaching into practice. Are we good in God's eyes? No. The third commandment confronts us with how often we dishonor God by disbelieving who he is. By not trusting who he is. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who can save us from ourselves? Commandment four. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. God says that for us to be good in his eyes, we're supposed to take a weekly break from our work and busyness to make room for worship and rest. And so to keep this commandment is not to live for Friday, it's to live for Sunday. TGIS. To set a time, set aside time, a regular time for quiet and rest and relaxation, to be still and know that God is God. To spend time being, not doing, especially with family and friends, and in solitude. To cease striving and to abide Trusting in the Lord and his love and your identity in him. God commands us to take one day a week for rest and delight, for recreation and restoration. Are we good in God's eyes? No. The fourth commandment exposes our restless, 
workaholic self-preoccupation and our terrible predisposition to live as human doings rather than human beings. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God who can save us from ourselves. Commandment five, honor your father and your mother. God says that in order for us to be good in his sight, we're supposed to be respectful and obedient and grateful for our parents, even when it's difficult to do so. And as parents, we're called to be worthy of honor by loving our children in the same way, the same manner that God loves us. Are we good in God's eyes? No. The fifth commandment reveals our natural dislike for authority and our lack of the ability to love with the comprehensiveness that God loves us. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who can save us from ourselves? Are you feeling that? That's the work of the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. One of the primary responsibilities of the Holy Spirit and the Godhead is to search our hearts and to convict us of our sins. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. That's what he's doing right now. Commandment six, you shall not murder. Now, to be good in the eyes of God goes much deeper than not taking someone's life. We're meant to add and contribute to the lives of others. To keep this commandment means not to hold grudges or hate anyone from your heart. Not to hurt anyone with your temper. Not to tear down anyone with your words. And not to break the spirit of anyone because of your selfishness or stubbornness or frustration. To keep this commandment means to have the best interests of others at heart. It means to be quick to serve and to affirm and to bless. To seek to understand before being understood. To humble yourselves and initiate reconciliation. And most of all, to forgive rather than seek revenge. Are we good in the eyes of God? No. The sixth commandment illuminates the darkness in our hearts. Because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who can save us from ourselves? Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. God says for us to be good in his eyes, we must honor his design for marriage. And that means honoring his will for sexual relations. God's standard is this, purity before marriage and fidelity thereafter. So to keep this commandment means to abstain from sex in thought, word, and deed outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. 
exploratory sex with your boyfriend in college doesn't feel like adultery until several years later when you have to explain it to your husband. You don't feel like you've cheated on your wife, but you've loved handfuls of women with impure thoughts, wandering eyes, and a lustful heart. Women you're not married to, women who are or will one day be married to somebody else. I've never met a kid who said, my life sucked until dad cheated on my mom, and then everything got better. It's also why we say in Texas, guns are for war, hunting, and dads with daughters. Thank you. <laughs> Laughter from my parents. I honor that. Are we good in God's eyes? No. The seventh commandment confronts the depths of our deception and depravity. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Who, who, who can save us from ourselves? Commandment eight, you shall not steal. God says for us to be good in his eyes, we must respect the person and property of others. And that means far more than just not breaking into someone's house and taking their stuff. We steal from our employers when we fail to do our best work. We steal from ourselves every time we waste our money on something that doesn't line up with our biblical values. We steal from our friends when we don't give them the benefit of the doubt. We steal from God when we take credit for something he's done. And as we are now seeking to attain and surpass the biblical tithe as an act of worship and discipleship, as those who are following Jesus with grace, it would be unloving for me not to read to you from Micah 3. Verses 8 and 10. Should people rob God? Yet you have robbed me, the Lord says. But you ask, Lord, what do you mean? When did we ever rob you? You have robbed me of the tithes and offerings due to me. And so you are under a curse. All of you are under a curse for cheating me. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, so there will be enough food in my house. If you do, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. It's the only time in the entire divine narrative that God says, test me on something and watch what I do to bless you. Can you imagine what it would be like if all of us cheerfully and from the heart and grateful response to the love of God attained or surpassed the biblical tithe? Do you know how many missional residencies God would raise up? Do you know how many apostolic bands he would form? Do you know how many churches we would be able to plant? Are we good in God's eyes? No. The eighth commandment exposes our pride and our greed and our disobedience. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Who can save us from ourselves? <coughs> Commandment nine, you shall not bear false 
witness. God says that for us to be good in his eyes, we must let the truth flow into and out of every area of our lives. And so to keep this commandment means being humble and not creating a false impression of yourself to make you seem better or more important than you really are. It means being quick to defend someone's reputation, not remaining silent. It means speaking the truth in love, not avoiding conflict because it takes time or because it might be painful or because you're afraid of how someone will respond. It means not condemning others because you don't like their looks or their voice or their style or their girlfriend or their politics or whatever. Not upholding this commandment has real consequences in the lives of real people like we've experienced this week. Are we good in the eyes of God? No. Commandment 9 makes us realize that according to God's standard for truthfulness, we're big, fat liars. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Who can save us from ourselves? Commandment 10, you shall not covet. God says that for us to be good in his eyes, we must love people, not their possessions. We must love people, not programs. We must love people for who they are, not for what they do, especially not for what they can do for us. And so to keep this commandment means that having a roof over our head, three meals a day, clothes on our back, a car, an education, and at least one good friend makes it unacceptable to complain about our lack of resources. It means living with a generous heart and an open hand, willing to share anything you own if it would bless somebody else. It means crucifying our addiction to social media, where we basically covet people's vacations and relationships and meals and purchases. It means not comparing people's highlight reel to your behind-the-scenes reality. If we actually loved our neighbor, we'd prefer for them to have better stuff and rejoice when they do because that's what love does. But we don't because we love ourselves more than we love one another. Are we good in God's eyes? No. The Tenth Commandment points out how whiny, ungrateful, and self-centered we can be. We all fall short of the glory of God. Who can save us from ourselves? Deep down, we are not basically good. We're corrupt and incapable of meeting God's clear expectations and requirements. 
we don't have what it takes to live up to the righteousness the law requires. We know it. We feel it. And as we gaze into God's law this morning, we find ourselves feeling dirty and guilty and judged. And that is a significant purpose of the law. It's how the Holy Spirit uses the law in our lives to help shape us as a people for God. The law demonstrates that no one, that none of us can ever please God based upon our efforts and our abilities. We don't have what it takes. We can't do it. And so Paul writes to the church in Rome. In Romans 3, verse 19, the purpose of the law is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. Guilty. Guilty. And so, while the law is itself good, God never intends the law to make us good. It can't. The law has the power to convict our hearts, but it doesn't have the power to change our hearts. And so we need something apart from the law to make us good and right and perfect in the eyes of God. To take away the original sin and to restore us to original glory. So the greatest purpose of the law is to convict us of our desperate need for a Savior. And to point us to the one who is. This is the theme and the thrust of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Highlighted in Galatians 3, 24, which says, The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. Do you feel that? Do you feel the hope welling up within you? That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Because one of the primary responsibilities the person of the Holy Spirit has in the Godhead is to search our heart and convict us of sin and to point us to the one who saves us from it. He will remind us everything that Jesus taught. And everything he does will point to Jesus. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so he was born under the law and perfectly obeyed the law so that he could become the final sacrifice of the law 
and thereby establish a new covenant founded on the promise that God loves us so much that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not have their sin held against them, but will be reconciled with God and declared righteous in his sight. It is in Christ that we are worthy to stand in the presence of the Father. And through Christ that the Father looks at us and smiles with delight and says, you are good. Not because of what we've done, not because of what we have merited or earned, but because what God has done for us in and through Christ. Because Christ now lives in us giving us life and the ability to honor God and please God and the Spirit of God working in us, conforming us to the image of Christ and helping us live according to our new nature, our new identity. The old's gone, the new has come. We are now in Christ Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That is so good for our souls. The foundation of our justification rests on Jesus. Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He fulfills the law on our behalf. And then on a cross... In our place, he takes the punishment our disobedience of the law deserves. Who can save us from ourselves? Jesus. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, we are set free from the penalty of the law and restored to a right relationship with God and one another by the grace of God through faith in his son. It's finished. Your part is faith, not works, not duty, not ritual. The law is good and we uphold the law in Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. But we have been set free from the law and made worthy in God's sight through Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, as we come to the Lord Jesus this morning through the bread and the wine, Come in humility. Come acknowledging the ways that you fall short of the glory of God, but come with a, a grateful and expectant heart that God not only forgives you your sin and removes your sin as far as the east is from the west, but he purifies you from all unrighteousness and clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. And so we can come, we can draw near to God, and God loves to draw near to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us enough to give us the law, to clarify your expectation of us, to shape us 
as a people for yourself. Thank you for wanting us to be good. Thank you for wanting to restore us to the original glory you created us to enjoy. And for giving us the law as a diagnostic for how we're not. But most especially, Father, we thank you for making it to where our goodness doesn't depend on us. Thank you for satisfying the requirements of your law for us through your Son, our gracious Savior, the cure for sin, and whom we have forgiveness and redemption and the assurance of your blessing and approval and favor now and forever. Amen.